Welcome to Conversations in Equine Science. My name is Kate Acton and I'm joined by Nancy McLean. And this is the podcast where we take equine research and try and make it accessible to horse owners and enthusiasts alike. Remember that with each topic we discuss, it's important to get professional advice before implementing any of the strategies. This week, Nancy and I are looking at a paper that is titled, It's a Form of Freedom, the Experiences of People with Disabilities Within Equestrian Sport. This is by Catherine Dashber, and this is a little bit of an older paper, but is very relevant at the moment with the current um, Paralympic Games, and particularly the Paraquestrian is what we're taking a look at. So I just wanted to start um, this topic by saying that the words that we will use because they come up in the paper quite a bit are disability, um, persons with disabilities and the term disabled. It is definitely a personal um, identification with how you like to term that if you, have a, if you are a person with a disability or if you know someone that has a disability definitely ask them what their preferred term is and then be sure to respect that if you do have to um, mention it. But what's also really important is that the disabilities which we see in this paper are definitely um, not so much at the forefront. I think the main driver here is the freedom that is created by the use of horses and just how life-changing their impact can be. So as a quick overview, for those of you that don't know what para-equestrian is, it's an equestrian sport for people with a classifiable physical or visual impairment. And basically dressage is the main, the only para-equestrian Um, discipline at the moment and there are other disciplines that are gaining traction I would say but they're not part of the Paralympic Games and that is things like para driving, para jumping, para reining. These are gaining momentum in Europe, the USA and the UK Um, and I think there's quite a bit of para reining that is done in Australia as well. So if it's something you're interested in it's definitely worth taking a look into. The classification that I mentioned is an interesting one um, because not all Paralympic Games classify or use this kind of functional classification system to determine how riders should fall within um, groupings for competition. I think swimming is another sport in the Paralympics that will use a similar classification. And the reason they use it is because it can take something like you know, having 30 competitions down to just having 10. But what is noted in this, because there has been some, um, I suppose, chatter that this functional classification isn't necessarily the most fair way to determine it. And critics of the system will argue it puts more severely impaired athletes at a disadvantage. But in dressage, the system of functional classification is actually embraced um, and considered to be quite a fair system. So the respondents in this study 
did say while it is time consuming they do think it's necessary and essentially fair and on that point as well I just want to note that this study looked at five respondents um, that are Paralympic athletes so it's not a true um, basis for you know, disabled riders across the board and not necessarily a true representation for all para-equestrian athletes, but it's a really nice kind of way to delve into the impact that horses have, certainly in these people's lives. Yeah, in the classification system, they're in gradings. So like a grade one would be like a severe impairment that affects all four limbs and trunk. And the athlete athlete typically requires use of a wheelchair and they may be able to walk, but it's an unsteady gait and their trunk and balance are severely impaired. And I have to say, when I was watching the dressage, the grade one freestyle, which is to music, um, these are some brave riders because they may at certain times use Velcro or rubber bands to have the stability in the saddle, but still it takes a lot when you don't have a lot of body control to put yourself on a horse and compete at this level. And it was really amazing to um see that so many of the para dressage riders throughout the course of their years at this sport they compete in able-bodied dressage yes. test as well and that's that shows a lot of fortitude and determination and you know I just had never thought about it that way before and uh, anyway um if you move on to grade two it's a severe impairment of the trunk and minimal impairment of the upper limbs or moderate impairment of the trunk, upper and lower limbs. And most do use a wheelchair. So as you go along in these gradings, the impairment um, gets less. So that's um, what happened the past week in the Olympics. I think it started October. August 25th, and it concluded towards the um, end of August. And I think um, what was nice about this study is just getting that firsthand experience from the athletes. So participants in the study spoke frequently about how the way their introduction to disability sports had fundamentally changed their lives. So for example, Pete, who was one of the respondents, he said he was the most severely disabled of the riders in the study and he required daily assistance with dressing and household tasks. And prior to his introduction to paradressage in his early 20s, he really did believe that as a disabled person, he'd be restricted to a desk job, which he hated, and he became very depressed. But after seeing paradressage and it's so, I find this crazy. So paradressage only actually became a thing in 1996. So it's such a relatively new sport, particularly in the scheme of the Olympic Games. But once he's seen this, he contacted the governing body. So in the UK, that was the RDA and asked if he could get involved, which I think is really cool as well. You know, just knowing what support is there and who you can reach out to and 
even as someone who's not particularly into sport, horse riding, I think, doesn't feel like a sport as such because you can do it at a leisure pace as well. But he states this changed his life. It's led to an entirely different way of living that he couldn't have imagined before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was like Mark, too. I think out of all five, Mark was the only one that was not born with a disability. And um, he was a successful show jumper, but at 42 years of age, um, he was competing with multiple sclerosis. And he said it was much more difficult to adapt to parasitage with having less body control. Um, he seemed to struggle with that rather the congenital um, disability riders they had dealt with that disability from birth, so they didn't have quite the difficulty level of adjusting. So, um, you know, Mark kept at it, and he said um, without this sport, he would have really gone into a depression because riding horses was his life, and uh, he's grateful that he can continue his profession, but in a different discipline. And this highlighted that disability sport is a great way of breaking down perceived links between disability and it being a weakness or an ineffectiveness. You know, it really does create that equality. But particularly the equestrian part of this is so important because, as Nancy said, these riders were riding in everyday dressage competitions as well as para dressage and it just opened up you know there's no um gender category men women however you identify you all rise in the same category i think it does break barriers in that sense there's a great sense of equality you know and the way even the riders talk about the animals i think is really it just shows it's such based on such a connection i think it was um the belgian rider oh i think her name is her surname's george but she had a great way of terming it she said that the horse had an incredible confidence in her and i thought that was so nice like that the importance of that trust which we discussed in um our episode on the pentathlon how important it is to have that trust, but particularly in the para dressage. But yeah. she said, and many of the riders do, like these horses are their family. They're an extension of them. And, you know, they really are treated as such. Yeah, it's, um, we do have to give a shout out to um, the grade one uh, dressage individual gold medalist. That was Roxanne Trunnell of the USA. And then Latvia, uh, Rehard Snickis got the silver. And then Sarah Morganti from Italy got the bronze. Now, that was the grade one where they're severely disabled. And uh, the grade two went to the very popular um, Great Britain's Lee Pearson. It seems like he's had the gold medal for a long time in this sport. And um, that is the grade two. So back to the classifications, that's severe impairment of the trunk and minimal impairment of the upper limbs or moderate impairment of the trunk, upper and lower limbs. 
they do use a wheelchair. And then from from grade three, four, and five, they may not be in a wheelchair, but they may have, um, you know, different impairments. So I thought grade one, what you got to give them a shout out on grade one, grade two, uh, even I wouldn't even mind these. I mean, they would probably beat anybody in a dressage test, you know, and grade one is walk with, um, you know, walking the test. And then grade two is walk trot. And then grade three can be walk trot with a little canter. And so as the grades increase, their disability lessens, but their gates can be increased. So I think it's a really well-defined criteria for judging and for the competition. I think so too. I think it's definitely, if it's, it's not something I would have watched every year. This year, I kind of got drawn into it, you know, for the sake of kind of getting drawn into the Olympics a little bit too. I never would have been um, like sitting down, I have to watch them. But it's something I'm definitely going to watch going forward. I also, I definitely said every year there, even though it doesn't occur. <laughs> you can tell I don't commonly watch it. It was, it was different. I had never watched it before. And, um, you know, I have to say Great Britain had some wonderful riders. You can tell they've been involved in this for the longest time and uh, they did get the bronze as well in the grade two it was Georgia Wilson and Peppo Pook got the um, silver from Austria so um, you can go to the olympics.com Tokyo Paralympic Games and you can get all the results and we have to give kudos to or kudos to all the riders and the placements, because even if they didn't get a medal, you have to give them um, a clap for all the courage they have to be participating in this sport. And two of which that I came across is Philippa Johnson-Dwyer. She's a South African rider. She was in grade, oh, was it grade four, I believe? But she had um, 10 months before the Games, she was diagnosed with a heart condition and they also found out she had cancer and she went for heart surgery and then she had radiation and then she had chemotherapy and she was out of riding for seven months before the competition. Um, she finished eighth in her class, which is just incredible. And then Louise Jacobson, who is Swedish, um, she had broken her leg. So just two months before the competition, broken her leg. And her daughters helped her by continuing to ride her horse. So her horse was up to scratch and she got her cast off in time to ride in the competition, which is just, I mean, it's absolutely incredible. There's, I read back as well to the Athens games. There was a rider and um, her horse passed away a couple of months before the games. So unfortunately she didn't get to ride, but she managed to this time around. So it really is like the the things that some of these riders have overcome to get to this stage is just incredible and well worth a read. And I think this paper highlighted nicely an attention that needed to be drawn to this because I don't think there is a massive amount of research 
into um, particularly para dressage. And we see that because there isn't, you know, there's so much more research that can be done in equestrianism in general. But looking at disability sport and how that can definitely open up pathways for people is something we should focus on going forward. That's like to that John in the study. I think he was 22 years of age and he always felt like people felt sorry for him. But when he came back from Paralympics equestrian, um, he was a rider. Um, he felt like a mini celebrity and it boosted his um, own, you know, his own confidence and self-worthiness and mm -hmm. all that's that is really tells a lot right there how it it gives them um you know an identity that maybe they wouldn't have without the horse uh being their partner so um and i i even watched the paralympic uh, rugby and those guys were all in i mean it was uh it really kind of uh, sucked me in to watch it because it seemed to be rougher than the real rugby. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, the wheelchairs are flying and they're all out. And uh, boy, it's such an incredible act of athleticism that uh, you, you, I really was amazed. It really is a step above. You know, when you watch them compete in these sports and you think about the general sport, you're like, this is so like clearly so much harder what these people have to do. And they, they like in this study, Alex 19, she competed for two years with prosthetic legs and no one even knew she was disabled and she competed in able body dressage. And so, I mean, that's, that is really incredible to, to be at that level. And uh, anyway, it just, uh, you know, those of us who are able body, we have no excuses, you know, we need mm -hmm. to ride our horses and, or, or do any sport, you know, you're never, um, it's all on what you want to do and what you're driven to do. And these guys have no bounds, you know, they get on those horses and compete and it's really admirable. I definitely think mindset just plays such a massive role. And as someone who's gotten to see, like, you know, in Ireland, we have a group called Festina Linte, but it's um, riding for people that have any kind of like learning or mental impairment and getting to see kids get up on horses and just how it really does have this I, I don't know how you'd even call it like this quietening effect, like the movement and just the feel of the horse under the child. Like you can just see this connection start to begin and they become focused. And it's, I don't think we really can stress enough how amazing animals are to our well-being. And, you know, they've done studies into, you know, petting your dog or petting your cat releases feel-good endorphins, lowers your risk of stroke. Like there's so many upsides to this. And I think this is a nice one to have delved into this week, the freedom that comes with it for people that otherwise wouldn't be able to do this. Absolutely agree. It was a good paper and you it caused, you know, I guess 
had me go back and there's plenty of video on YouTube and different sites of these riders competing. And um, it's amazing. The freestyle was really a lot of fun to watch. So um, anyway, you guys can do that. And uh, it's just a whole other realm where horses fill a need and serve a purpose. And um, it seems like uh, these riders couldn't be happier. Definitely. I think that's everything I had for this paper this week, Nancy. Had you anything else? Nope. Nope. That's it. It was really interesting. Thanks for picking it out and bringing it to my attention. And next week we will be back again. If you do have any requests, then you can find us on Facebook at Conversations in Equine Science or on Instagram, conversations.equinescience. If you do have an iPhone, um, please, if you could take a few minutes to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, we would be very grateful on iTunes. Um, and that's all. Thanks so much. Okay. Thanks, Kate. Take care.